My Mum Made Me, the show about the wonderful and sometimes the weird ways in which our mums make us who we are today. Hi, it's Paul here. I really hope you're enjoying the show and I'm going to ask you a favour if you are. Please do follow us. If you do, you'll get to hear all of the episodes first and of course it helps with my self-esteem. I'm only joking. Don't forget to rate us. We're currently on 4.9 stars, which is really exciting and every rating makes my mum, Teresa, laugh just a little bit more. Simon Squibb has quite literally been taking the internet by storm. He has made a lot of money in successful business ventures and has now started to give it away. So Simon goes onto the streets and talks to strangers, gives them money to start the businesses of their dreams or perhaps change their life in a way that makes them enjoy what they're doing even more. But that's not actually the reason we're speaking to Simon today. Simon has an unconventional relationship with his mum. She kicked him out of home when he was 15. He was homeless. He was estranged from her for a number of years He attempted reconciliation a couple of different times as an adult, including most recently with the birth of his son, but they didn't go to plan and they haven't led to the sort of relationship that perhaps Simon and and objectively others would want from their own mother. In this two-part episode, we're going to be talking to Simon about exactly that, about the the feeling and kind of memory of, of kind of rejection the attempts to reconcile how they went and ultimately where that's left him today in the relationship with his mum. Spoiler alert, it's not necessarily a happy ending but it's a very truthful, honest and candid conversation with Simon Squibb. Hello, hello. I'm here today with the wonderful Simon Squibb and uh, just before we came on I asked Simon how we wanted to be introduced and and I I think a fair introduction is as a human who cares. Simon is an entrepreneur, business person, mentor, many many kind of other titles to his name but Simon I, I think it's fair to say that latterly you help people quit their nine to five to focus on what they want to do and make money from it is that a fair sort of accolade for for Simon Squibb would you say yeah I like to think that um, it's less about people quitting their nine to five and and more about people enjoying their day to day Mm. you know nine to five symbolizes for in my opinion for a lot of people the word work and the word work is almost a negative word um, it, for 99% of people, you know, they're looking for a way to no longer work. Yeah, that's that's the dream, right? Passive income, no longer have to work. But I think the word work, actually, in my view of it, is it's a lot of fun. So I, I, nine to five symbolizes, I think, the lack of fun, the restrictions, the pointless rules. And so it's less about quitting the nine to five and more about embracing your true purpose. Um, Simon, I usually start these sessions with my guests um, with a story from my mum, because we, we're going to spend 99% of the time talking about you, your mum, your background, etc. But just to sort of kick us off, and before I tell the story, um, I want you to think about the following question, which is, um, what would I guess, a young Simon have done in this situation? So my mum is what I would call pre-woke. Um, I think she was woke before it was fashionable to be woke. And this is back in the sort of late 80s in, in Bradford. She had a uh, a mission to make everything we did at school politically correct. 
Um, and it kind of even went down to nursery rhymes, prayers at church, how we would like, which box we ticked on the kind of um, the census forms and stuff like that. I'll give you one example. I remember coming home, I think it was, it was sort of like nursery or primary school and we were sort of, we'd been singing like Bar Bar Black Sheep. Um, and they'd given us a little sheet uh, with Bar Bar Black Sheep and Postman Pat, uh, the lyrics and the kind of the melody. And she took it <laughs> and she corrected it. And the, the following came out. Um, so I had to go back to school the next day and sing, Bar bar monochrome sheep, have you any wool? Yes, Mr. and Mrs. Yes, Mr. and Mrs. Three bags full. And they kind of went on like that. And also post person pat, post person pat, post person pat and his monochrome cat. It, it The list goes on. And that was essentially my childhood, sort of gender neutralizing, making everything politically correct. There was even a time where on um, one of the forms at school, you had to identify your ethnicity. She crossed all of them out, drew her own bo box and ticked and wrote in, Anglo-Persian, which I think made me sound a bit like an oil company rather than a kid. So my question is, <laughs> having a pre-woke mum as I did, what would a sort of young Simon, how would a young Simon have navigated those um, slightly embarrassing little anecdotes? So I'm fascinated by that, by the way. You know, wh why was your mum like that? I think she felt we were different and people looked down on us for that. So I've got a brown Muslim dad, a white working class mum, um, who didn't really have two pennies to rub together, and two kids who looked a bit different from both of their parents. Mm. It's interesting because, you know, I, well, I've got a lot to say on, on this subject because my wife is Chinese and my son is mm. therefore half Chinese, half English. And it, it is an interesting phenomenon. I mean, and one of my issues with the school system is that the school system generally wants you to conform. It wants you to fit in. It wants you to kind of do what you're told. And actually, it is perceived as a negative if you're different. Hmm. You know, if you don't like to read a book, then you're not smart. I hate reading books. But, you know, that whole like it, you get categorized based on what society accepts as normal. Right. So I can somewhat resonate with what your mum was going through there. And, and I think, you know, words matter, right? Mm. And, and I noticed it in a different context, and I will answer some, this question in a second, but I noticed it in the context of like my son's books. You know, my son's five years old and I, and I, I like to read to him. I don't like to read, but I like to read to him. And I, I noticed all the books are always mums playing with kids. Mm. Every scenario is pretty much, the mum takes the, the child to nursery. The mum takes the son to the supermarket. And I started replacing mum with dad in a lot ah. of the stories um, up until the point of about four when my son would say, no, daddy, it says mummy. But um, and there's only one program on TV that I can highlight that let, you know shows dad playing with kids. And that's Bluey. I don't know if anyone mm. watches it, Lynn. But I love it because it's not so much woke, but it accepts that the societal norms are not true. Yeah. And that, you know, I do take my son to nursery. I am responsible for him. I am also a parent. You know, like it's not my wife's responsibility to look after my son. It's our responsibility to look after our son. And I don't like it that society seems to portray it as a natural thing um, and interestingly enough without whether this is going off tangent but when I was 
when I when my son was born, I told a lot of my friends I was going to take some time out, a couple of years, to be with my son and be a full time father. Now I could financially afford to do it. That's one thing. But the other thing I noticed a lot of people would be telling me, "Think how much money you're losing, Simon, if you're not earning the money." You know, like what? Think of all yeah. the things that you should be doing instead. You know, it's not normal to be looking really? after. Wow. And and this is from other men. Yeah. Right. So so anyway, um, you know, I definitely I think what would I've done in, in the situation? I mean, it's embarrassing when you're a kid. Frankly. <laughs> you just want to fit in. Same point. Yeah. Um, I think as you get older, I'm sure you've reflected on it, too. It's kind of interesting to change the lyrics. Makes mm. it kind of, actually, it's fascinating. It's, it's actually really heartening to hear you reflect on the question and the topic. It's sort of under the auspices of your son, who I guess may be feeling or may feel, I hope not, the same sense of uh, difference that I felt with two parents of a different colour, right? Um, uh, you know, navigating that in even in modern Britain, I guess, will be will be challenging. I want to, Simon, I want to wind back the clock. Um, one of the things that um, I think you're well known for in addition to your sort of business and kind of media success is that you had very humble beginnings in fact I think on your website you talk about being homeless at um, 15 years old can you just paint us a picture of what led to that so I, I have told this story a few times and weirdly I still find it really hard to tell it in in the context of you know what actually happened but in in, in a simple uh way and and you know <laughs> My father died suddenly of a heart attack. I was 15. Um, he was 56. Out of the blue, he died. He had the heart attack in front of me. I thought he was joking. Oh you know, gosh. I didn't think he was actually having a heart attack. I thought it was some game or some, uh, I don't know, you know, drama. Um, and it was very late, like, you know, one o'clock in the morning. And, and we called an ambulance. The ambulance took too long to come and he died. And it was so weird because you go from like, you know, you have your father there. I'd never had anyone in my life die that was close to me. So one second they're there and then the next second they're not. You can't even say goodbye. You can't. It's just nothing. And so it was, of course, as you'd expect, a very strange time. But as a 15 year old who's just lost their dad, you're quite selfish, right? You're quite, mm. you know, woe is me, basically. And um you know, I never really took into consideration much, perhaps what my mum was going through. Um, she, they'd be, they'd been together twenty years. They seem to argue all the time, but you know what parents don't, I guess. And um, but my mum, and you know, I've got some stories about my mum a bit like yours. You know, my my mum uh, is a very well, I think you probably describe her today and she's still alive, so I have to be sensitive. Um, mm. She might listen to this, but I think she's a narcissist. Mm. And so she'd disagree, I'm sure. Um, but uh, but at the end of the day, it was all about her when my father died. And, you know, I reflect on it. It should have been somewhat about her, but as a 15-year-old, it's about me. Yeah. So at that moment, um, as you'd expect anyway, with the hormones flying around... You know, I was a pretty good kid. I didn't drink or anything. I didn't smoke. I was I was neither stupid nor smart at school. I didn't really care. I basically rebelled a bit, but not in a bad way. I just said I want to go to my girlfriend's house. I don't want to. Mm. I, I didn't want to go home. When I went home, everybody was sad. I've got three brothers, my mum. People were coming around. It was just sad all the time. Sad, sad, sad. And 
and I didn't want to be sad. So I didn't want to go home. So I would go home with my girlfriend and have dinner at their, you know, her family's house. And I would, yeah. you know, go out with her on a Saturday. And I just, you know, and I think my mom took it as some sort of rejection um, of, of her. And she basically told me, you know, stop seeing this girl. She was a lovely girl, nothing wrong with her at all. Um, you know, and I say objectively, she was a lovely girl. Uh, but, you know, my mum just decided she didn't like her, of course, for obvious reasons, and, and just said, I don't like her. She can't come to our house. Um, you know, stop seeing her, otherwise leave. And I'm like, wow, I'm blackmailed. Yeah. Um, I, I, think, I think, you know, I'm allowed a life, you know. Mm. Um, and she said, well, um, you know, it's my way or the highway. Get out of my house. So Jeez. I said, I just walked out the door saying, okay, I'll get out of your house. And I walked out the door with nothing, nothing. I had nothing. And um, I went round to uh, my girlfriend's house, as you expect, and they let me stay there for a little while. And then that didn't feel right. So um, I had another family friend, a friend of my dad's kind of, who had a house. And they, they said, uh, it was like a, frankly, it was like a squat. They were renting out rooms in this house that they owned. And they said, I could, I could have one of the rooms. Um, and so I, I initially uh, moved into it, but it was like, it turned out to be like a drug den. I didn't really know. Wow. Yeah. So I left that house and found myself uh, sleeping on a roundabout uh, at a park. Um, and at that point, I mean, I didn't really register this, but now I look back and I realized I was homeless. I was, I was a homeless yes. person. Yes. And so, you know, frankly, I don't know why, but homelessness wasn't so prevalent back then. Now I think mm. it's very prevalent. I mean, there's 250,000 homeless people registered yeah. in the UK registered. We're not even talking unregistered, right? So I feel yeah. like everyone understands that homelessness is a, is a real issue. Back then it was like some guy sleeping in the park yeah you know the it, awareness it, of it and the, the the kind of vernacular has has come on hasn't it if you don't mind me asking how long did it take you to well either reconcile that or forgive your mum I'm not suggesting that she needed forgiving or or not but as a 15 year old that's a tough thing to have to come to terms with when it's being imposed by your mum yeah so uh, it, it's a uh... Very long answer. I don't know if we've got enough time in this podcast to to go through the whole process that I've been through. But I um, initially, it just, I just went into survival mode. I, hmm. There wasn't any hate. There wasn't any anger. There was just, I need to make money to buy food. Hmm. I cannot sleep on this roundabout. You know, I cannot sleep in this park. It. I need a shelter. I need this, you know, I need to get myself sorted out. So I went and tried to get a job. I went into a, a shop and said, can you give me a job? And they said, have you got a national insurance card and an address? I didn't have either because I was 15. I didn't have a national insurance card in the UK. You don't get it to your 16. And I, I, I didn't have an address. So I literally couldn't fill out the application forms for these different places that I could have potentially got work from because I didn't have the two things they needed on the form. So I was desperate and it was about a week into being homeless that I, I walked past this house, big house, that had a really messy garden. And for the first time in my life, this entrepreneurial muscle, I call it, woke up in my brain. Never been taught to me at school, of course. And suddenly I thought, why is that house garden so messy when it's such a nice house? 
maybe they don't have time to take care of it and I can charge them to take care of it and make some money. Hmm. So, you know, in my naivety, I knocked on the door of that house and said, hi, my name's Simon. I've got a gardening company. Would you like me to take care of your garden? And this person said, great. I've been thinking I need to get some help. I haven't had time. Uh, yes. So how much? And I just picked a number out of the air, 200 pounds a month. And they said, sure, that's great. When can you start? <laughs> and I said, next week sort of thing. Um, and they said, great. What do you need from me? And I said, can I get a 50% deposit? And they said, sure, and gave me £100 cash. Wow. And I, th- and I walked away thinking, wow, that's incredible from nothing to business. Of course, things start clicking. I don't have, a, I don't have any lawnmower or you know, digger or I don't know how to do gardening, all of these things, right? But I, I just thought initially, I thought, well, actually what I need is at least 10 people to say that, that I can afford to rent the equipment and do this. And so then I just went crazy and knocked on as many doors as I could and, and I knocked on over 100 doors on this one day and managed to get 12 people to say yes to me being their gardener. Wow. Um, so, you know, it, it was kind of like a, I always tell people, if you want to be successful, it's not enough to want it. Yeah. Everybody wants it. You know, and, and so you, you need to take your want and make it a need. Right. You, so I needed it. I didn't just want a gardening company. I didn't just want to be my own boss. I needed it. There was no mm. other choice. And I think that's what made it made it work. And it, you know, back to the point about my mum. Sorry, I could so I didn't answer the question fully about like how did I reconcile it with my mum? Initially, these are the stages. Survival. And I think that was probably three or four years. 1920. I'm getting to a point where my businesses are working, I'm making money. I'm learning how business works. I get stable. And then I get an opportunity at 23 to go to Hong Kong. I go to Hong Kong. I start a company there. It, I work every single day. And eventually it becomes this really successful business, which I eventually sold to PricewaterhouseCooper. Mm-hmm. And actually, it wasn't until I probably sold my company to PricewaterhouseCooper and, and the millions dropped in my bank account. That was probably the first time that I kind of looked up and thought, how do I feel about my mother? Hmm. How do I feel about all of this? I hadn't seen her in a on and off conversations with my brothers and family members and different drama moments with my mum from between then and, and that moment. I did not speak to her, but I just didn't think about her. And that did come back to bite me because it's like putting pain in a box. Yes. You know, and then, and then later opening up that box and I think the longer you've left the pain in the box the more difficult it is to deal with it yeah so that point when I was no longer worrying about my basic financial needs I started addressing the pain Um, and it was a process I think I was angry at her and then I tried to forgive her and then she did some more shit to me (laughs) so that added back to the pain and then um, and then eventually I, I've come full circle to like this weird thing that I was really lucky she kicked me out hmm. because today I have a wonderful life. I, I'm, I'm financially free. I've got a wife I love, a son I love, a business I love. I've got people I really care about around me. I, I've got I've got everything. I had heating on last night in a nice home you know like I've come from nothing and I'm so so grateful for what I've got and I don't think I'd have any of that appreciation or that hunger to get there or 
any of the things I have today, I wouldn't have any of it if my mum hadn't delivered me bad luck. You know, my bad luck was my good luck. And that's such a, a sort of stoic um, and I guess really positive frame to put on it. Because as you said, you know, you, you had to go through hell to get to kind of where you are. I'm, I'm interested. So I have had a difficult relationship with my mom for, for lots of different reasons. She, she didn't um, kick me out, but there was a whole, uh, how to explain it? Um, she was uh, treated very badly by men uh, when she was young and I think struggled having a son. And so made me sort of feel guilty about being a boy and then a teenage boy and then a man. And I think, anyway, whatever. So there's, you know, everyone has a gripe with their parent. But for me, and there is a question here, for me, the things that I was annoyed about wasn't necessarily the the hurt that it caused directly. It was being, I think, deprived of the soothing, caring um, things that you need from a parent. And, and my question is, you, you went into survival mode, you kind of got yourself into a position of financial security, and then you started working on your emotional security. Was that from a position, were you pissed off, basically? Or was that more a desire to have that soothing, caring, um, unrequited and unconditional love from a parent back in your life? I have been pissed off at, at points, but I think, do you have a kid yourself? No, it does change things when you have your own I, kid. I bet, I bet, yeah. Um, now, uh, I literally just was playing a game with my son before this podcast, and he didn't like the way we were playing the game and got upset with me, right? <laughs> now, his perception is that I didn't play the game right, right? My perception is he didn't explain the rules to me right, okay? <laughs> So who's wrong and who's right? It doesn't really matter. It's about his perception and my perception. Now, my my experience with parenting, and I'm only five years into this journey as a parent myself, is that intent matters. Yeah. Right. So my my mother, if she had kicked me out of home to help me get where I am today, then I'd be grateful. Hmm. Right. But she didn't. She did it to control me, right? So when I'm arguing with my son, I always remember my intent. And I always tell him, my intent is that I love you. And actually, I would, I want to die before you do. I, I, will, I will save your life and give up my own any moment, any second right now for you. My intent is to lift you up. Hmm. And I never want to accidentally default into using my son to lift myself up, using my son to make me happy. Right. And then so I when I think about it, I'm grateful to my mum that she kicked me out, but I do not forgive her. Mm. Right. And I know people say you should forgive, but I, 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 I don't I don't accept that her way of doing things was right because I believe she's a narcissist and I believe that she did it for her own control. Mm. Right. Now, we all have a tendency to be selfish. Right. Narcissism, you know, depends on how you categorize it, but I categorize it as somewhat selfish, right? It's about what you ultimately can get out of the situation. Most of the time, it's about you. Everything's about you. And we have a tendency to be that way, right, as humans. And as a parent, I want my son to see that it's not my fault he didn't explain the rules, right? But how far am I going to go to make 
proof point that I'm right, right. Most important thing is that he knows that I'm there for him, even if we have a disagreement, and that I'm there ultimately to help him have a better life, right? Hmm. So I don't want to throw my son out at 15 years old, and I hope I never get to that stage. But there are situations where perhaps that's a good thing. Hmm. You know, for me, it was actually a good thing. I wasn't forced into going to university. I wasn't forced to becoming a lawyer, which is what my parents wanted me to be. Mm. And I had, I had freedom to find out who I was and what I wanted, which parents don't always give you, right? They will always tell you, get a plan B, go to university. You might like artistic work. You might like playing the guitar, but let's face it, have a plan B. And yeah. parents do it because they love you. But sometimes they accidentally do it so that they can tell their friends that you're training to be a doctor or that you've become a lawyer or they're doing it for them. And I think that's the mistake that I don't want to make. And I think that is the mistake my, my mother made. And you mentioned the phrase um, narcissism or kind of narcissistic personality. The reason I'm going to ask this question is the, the thing I enjoy doing about this podcast is I get to relate to other human beings in a way that we don't normally get to relate to each other. Um, by sometimes touching on the light, the dark, but also reflecting, you know, on your kind of memories as a kid, right? And I think there's lots of lessons in there. So the reason I'm asking this question is is perhaps to sort of shed light on some potential lessons to be learned. How much of that narcissism do you think was grief? How much of it was there before? And, and I guess uh, without sort of prying too much, why was it there, do you think? Yeah, so I've, I've, I've spent a lot of time probably a hundred thousand pounds talking to a psychiatrist about this mm. you know, is it my fault is it her fault you know and, and a big part of the psychiatrist process that i went through when discussing my mother was like trying to have empathy for her right understanding her origin story okay because sometimes you know history repeats itself right mm. a, a a child who is abused ends up abusing as an adult it's quite common right mm. and i think my mother had a particularly difficult childhood i mean she's a child of the 50s um 40s 50s and you know long story short m my granddad brought her up and her real mum i've never met and has never met my mum left my mum and my granddad when my mum was one years old. So wow. her real mother, her real mother left her. Now, I don't care what age you are, you know, that's going to stick with you, right? And as you get older, call it a mistake or not, but my granddad didn't tell my mum when he got remarried that, you know, my gran, I see her as my gran, but my mum's mum wasn't her real mum. Wow. So my mum always felt something wasn't right. And um, I've discovered all this really through, you know, my own research and talking to my grandparents. And, uh, but basically, you know, my mum ha always had this feeling that, she, you know, she was deserted and her, my, my, my gran, who was a lovely person, but wasn't her real mum. And then one day, I think around 25, she found out by looking at birth certificate to get a passport, that the registered name of her mum on the birth certificate wasn't actually the same name as her mum my gran yeah so there's a story right and and then you know i haven't spoken to my mom in the past about it. it's like you know she felt she was a bit you know treated badly by her not real mum and that uh, you know uh her dad had a very hard life because 
it was very unusual for the dad to be bringing up the daughter in that that time, right? Yeah. So you know, there's always a story that I, I frankly then empathise. You know, like she's she had a hard time, but I think where the empathy stops for me is when people don't recognise these things and don't get help. You know, if 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 my mum said, "Look, I had a horrific upbringing, and therefore I've 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 learned some bad lessons about parenting, and I've made it all about me because it wasn't about me when I was a baby. So as soon as I was an adult and had control, I made it all about me, right?" And, you know, and if she'd said those things and said, I need to get some help because I really shouldn't be kicking my 15 year old kid out on the street and letting them be homeless. I shouldn't. Um, I'm going to get help. I would have been there for I would be there for her even now, you know, like. But when people can't deal with the issue, you end up being sucked into quite a difficult life. Um, and and, and I, I don't, you know, without going too much into it, like my my son has food allergies, right? Quite serious mm. food allergies. He eats the wrong food. He dies. My mum doesn't believe in food allergies. Wow. You know, so it gets to a point where it's not just my health and well-being. I, mm. I put in with her strong personal beliefs. She can literally give my son some food because she doesn't believe in food allergies and he could die. You know, and she would do it because she believes things and that's that, you know. Uh, she wrote it. She voted for Brexit. She believes it was a good thing for this country. Mm. You know, there's, just no, there's no communicating. It's that's the way it is. How much, do you think that's self-protection, given what you said? So, you know, she had all the difficulties that you've just described and has formed this human being that she herself is familiar with. And anything that kind of detracts from that, it feels like uh, an attack, potentially. How much of that do you think is there? Yeah, I mean, we're all like that. No one likes their belief systems to be challenged, right? Yeah. You know, I, I believe Brexit's a bad idea. Maybe we don't mm. talk about this. I know, but you know, it's a bad idea. The B word, yes. You know, like, and I I think there's certain things that I I believe. I believe the education system is broken. I say that a lot of people get upset, you know, and and maybe I'm wrong, but maybe they're wrong. But the point is, people don't like to be challenged on things they firmly believe are true. I tell people, don't get a mortgage when they're young. I get a lot of hate for it. Like, everyone should get a mortgage. How else are you going to get rich? I'm like, everybody on the top 20 rich list got rich from starting a business, and then maybe they bought property later to store their money. Yes. You know, no one really bought property and got super rich. No one, you know, yeah. so um, it's 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 middle class people telling middle class people that's how you get rich. Right. And so I think the, um, you know, the belief system that we have, my mother is no different. Her belief system is so embedded in her childhood. You know, her self-worth is is tied up in her control. Right. And her control of what her fake mother in her mind um did to her and her control over not letting that happen to her anymore and so it just translates into other relationships doesn't it it's like well she could just cut me off how can you i could i love my son so much i couldn't imagine not seeing him. i've never not put him to bed right much to my business detriment i sometimes can't go and do traveling because i want to be with him and put him to bed right Mm. and so you know i can't imagine like not seeing him for 10 years you know, it's unimaginable to me. Even talking yeah. about it gives me pain, the idea of yeah. it. Yeah. But she's she's able to do it because it's a self-preservation thing, right? It's like my mother isn't really my mother. Boom, cut. She can cut it. You know, it's certainly something that becomes so entrenched in her personality that I think it gets to a point where it's probably untreatable as a problem.
So that's it for part one in this two-part episode with Simon Squibb. Simon's talked very powerfully and openly about his relationship with his mum so far. In episode two, which is coming shortly, Simon's going to unpack that a little bit more, talking about the different times he's tried to reconcile the relationship with his mum as an adult, including at the birth of his son, He uh, openly admits that he wants his son to have a relationship with his grandma, Simon's mum, but not all went to plan. And by Simon's own admission, you know, he was hurt a number of different times and it's led him to uh, not having the best relationship or or kind of the closest relationship with his mum today. So that'll be more from episode two of this episode with Simon Squibb on My Mum Me. We are on social media. How exciting. You can find us on Instagram at my mum made me pod. You'll get us on Facebook at my mum made me, Twitter at mum made me, and even TikTok at my mum made me. Why follow us on socials? Well, you're going to get extra bits from the show. You're going to be able to see our guests on video and of course, watch their reactions to my mum's lovely and sometimes a little bit weird voice notes. So give us a like and a follow.